Once there was a tree, and she loved a little boy. And every day the boy would come, and he would gather her leaves, and he would make them into crowns and play king of the forest. And he would climb up her trunk and swing from her branches and eat apples. And they would play hide and go seek. And when he was tired, he would sleep in her shade. And the boy loved the tree very much. And the tree was happy. But time went by, and the boy grew older, and the tree was often alone. Then one day the boy came to the tree, and the tree said, Come, boy, come and climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and eat apples and play in my shade and be happy. I'm too big to climb and play, said the boy. Said the boy. I want to buy things and have fun. I want some money. Can you give me some money? I'm sorry, said the tree, but I have no money. I only have leaves and apples. Take my apples, boy, and sell them in the city, and you will have money, and you will be happy. And so the boy climbed up the tree and gathered her apples and carried them away. And the tree was happy. But the boy stayed away for a long time, and the tree was sad. And then one day the boy came back, and the tree shook with joy and said, Come, boy, climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and be happy. I'm too busy to climb trees, said the boy. I want a house to keep me warm, he said. I want a wife and I want children, so I need a house. Can you give me a house? I have no house, said the tree. The forest is my house. But you may cut off my branches and build a house. Then you will be happy. And so the boy cut off her branches and carried them away to build his house. And the tree was happy. But the boy stayed away for a long time. When he came back, the tree was so happy she could hardly speak. Come, boy, she whispered. Come and play. I'm too old and sad to play, said the boy. I want a boat that will take me far away from here. Can you give me a boat? Cut down my trunk and make a boat, said the tree. Then you can sail away and be happy. And so the boy cut down her trunk and made a boat and sailed away. And the tree was happy, but not really. And after a long time, the boy came back again. I'm sorry, boy, said the tree, but I have nothing left to give you. My apples are gone. My teeth are too weak for apples, said the boy. My branches are gone, said the tree. You cannot swing on them. I'm too old to swing on branches, said the boy. My trunk is gone, said the tree. You cannot climb. I'm too tired to climb, said the boy. I'm sorry, said the tree. I wish I could give you something, but I have nothing left. I'm just an old stump. I'm sorry. I don't need very much now, said the boy. Just a quiet place to sit and rest. I'm very tired. Well, said the tree, straightening herself up as much as she could. Well, an old stump is good for sitting and resting. Come, boy, sit down. Sit down and rest. And the boy did. And the tree was happy. The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. Silverstein. The book kind of infuriates me. Anyone else? It's like, oh my goodness, this kid is ridiculous. And the tree just seems to keep giving and giving and giving. It's scandalous, really. The fact that this tree would do nothing but give. And I'm convinced that this perfectly describes the scandalous, ludicrous, insane way that God unconditionally loves you. I don't think there's many modern-day parables in our society that more accurately display how deep and how wide the love that God shows you. 
See, you're in this room today, I'm convinced, because God is absolutely crazy about you. And you know that's hard to believe sometimes, because we know deep down who we are. We know our deepest, darkest secrets. We know every single skeleton in our closet. So it's hard for us to embrace and accept that at times. It's hard for us to say, really? Um, But sometimes the simplest things in life are the hardest things to embrace. Well, if we haven't met before, my name is Bill. I'm one of the pastors here at Mosaic. And we are in the middle of a series called Core. So who is Mosaic? What makes our heart beat faster? What keeps us up at night? What are those things, what are those core values that we want to live by and die by? And so last week we talked about mission is why the church exists. That when people hear the name Mosaic in this city, they're going to say that is a community of action. And today what we're going to be stepping into is the reality that love, see love is the context for all mission. Unconditional love and grace is the context for everything we do. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 says, And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And so for us, we have elements uh, that kind of describe each one of our core values. Uh, and the element that we're going to talk about for love is water. Because just as uh, God sustains the universe with his love, Water sustains everything that we need. So water sustains life. If they find water on another planet out there somewhere, I'm sure they will find some sort of microorganism because water sustains life, but God's love sustains everything. Without God's love, there is nothing. And it's not really fair, unconditional love. It doesn't really make a lot of sense because our whole life we've been told You get what you deserve, right? There's no such thing as a free lunch. You have to earn everything that you have, but grace that God would give you everything, that God would continually give and give and give. See, Christianity is not a moral code or an ethic. It's a love affair. G.K. Chesterton said, let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair. See, God loves you so much that he's willing to do whatever it takes to constantly give back to you. How can God truly love me this much? And how can God continue to love so many people that will never love him back? Have you ever had someone that you were madly in love with that they didn't love you back? Anyone in the room? Maybe it was that first crush uh, I remember that moment. I was, uh, I was friends with this girl in college, and I was madly in love with this girl. Um, and I was madly in the friend zone. Anyone ever been in the friend zone before? Whoo! It's the worst, let me tell you that much. It is absolutely the worst. And I remember, uh, so we became friends, and I kept, I kept trying to figure out a way that I could tell her. You know, like, how can I do this? And I kept chickening out every time I was around her. And then even uh, once we got done with our first year of college, she came to visit me. Like, she came to my parents' house and stayed for a couple days to visit me. And I was like, cool, she must like me if she's willing to drive five hours to hang out with me, right? Um, Went to a Cubs game. I gave her a back massage, and I was like, okay, I'm in, right? I'm out of the friend zone. Uh, So I chickened out again. 
And summer went by, and I couldn't get it out of my head. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I was like, you know what? I need to offer to go visit her, and I'll go visit her, and then I'll tell her. So I went to visit her, stayed at her parents' house, and kept convincing myself every day. Like, I would psych myself up in the mirror. Like, you take a shower. You know you've done it before, right? Right? You're like, uh-huh, okay, okay, you got this. Come on, Bill. Come on. We can do it. And then I would get around her and chicken out. Before I knew it, I'm in my car driving back, and I'm just pounding my fist on the wheel because I can't believe that I couldn't have the courage to say three words. I like you, which was actually a lie because I was in love with her, but I didn't want to scare her off, you know? Right? You can't, you can't go too far too soon. So, uh, But I was so mad, and then something inside me snapped. Something broke inside of me. And I literally, like a 10-year-old boy, began weeping behind the steering wheel. Like, it was like snot was running. And it had been probably about a decade since I had really cried like that. I'm not a very emotional person. I'm not the kind of person who gets really too caught up. I like to, like a guy, like push down my emotions. Um, but it just came flooding out. I couldn't help it. It just was like and this explosion in the car. Because like, it was so frustrating to me that I would love someone so much, and yet I couldn't say the words, I like you. The fact that I just internally, I'm like, what? Why can't I do this? And the fact that she wouldn't know that I loved her. And man, I'm convinced that God feels exactly the same way about you. That he's so desperate for you to know and to hear his voice. And I think it's so hard for us to embrace that. It really is. It's one of the simplest things about this thing called faith that we have. And yet it's so hard for us to believe. When Evan's up here and he asks the question for you guys to, in your mind, ask God the question, God, do you love me? I don't know if you're anything like me, but typically what ends up happening is my brain gets flooded with all the things that I'm doing wrong. My brain gets flooded with all those things that I'm not doing very well. My brain gets flooded with all those failures in my life. It doesn't get flooded with love all the time. And so, so often we don't believe this thing called unconditional love. We don't believe, as Ephesians chapter 3 says, that how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love is to surpass knowledge that you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. Philippians chapter 2 says, Though Jesus, he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that God himself, the creator of everything, would humble himself enough and empty himself out on a giving tree. See, the cross is God's giving tree, that God would become a stump for you to sit on. St. Augustine said, God loves us as if there was only one of us. God loves us as if there's only one of us. See, it's not this ethereal thing that God so loved the world. It's that God so loved you. God is madly and desperately in love with you. God loves you, Andrew. I want you to know that. God loves you so deeply, John. God loves you madly and desperately, Matt. 
And I think so often when we read those scriptures, we don't insert our name, but so many times, I feel like one thing that we need to embrace today is the fact that God, that God knows my name and that God actually cares about me and that God actually loves me. And how crazy is it for us to think that there's anything that we could do to make God love us more? How wacky is it that we've turned this thing, uh, this idea of faith into this idea that there's things that we can do to make God accept us. Things that we could do that make God love us more. And I understand it's a paradox because I just said that uh, our first core value is mission is why the church exists. That we want to be a church of action, right? So I say we want to be a church of action and we want to be a church of unconditional love. We want to be a church that does a lot of stuff, but hey, guess what? You don't have to do anything. You know, there's a tension there. It's like, where do, we, where do we really, like, how do we embrace both of those things and find them as true? Because the truth is, you don't have to do anything. You don't. It's just a gift. But see, we believe uh, at, here at Mosaic that God has so desperately loved us, scandalously loved us, that it's transformed everything. And that is what draws us into action. That love draws us into action. Brennan Manning says, God loves you as you are, not as you should be. Because none of us are as we should be. None of us are as we should be. You know, it feels like so often if you went out there, if you went out into... uh, and you ask some people who aren't part of communities of faith, and you said, hey, can you tell me three things about Christians? Just give me three, three things that would describe a person of faith. I almost promise you those three things that they would say, they would say they're homophobic, they hate Planned Parenthood, and they're judgmental. <laughs> Be honest. Like, how did we take and manipulate this thing called unconditional love? That God is constantly pursuing us. That God is constantly trying to say to us how much he loves us. How do we take something like that and turn it into this thing of morality and ethics? That God is just trying to make us nicer people. That God is just trying to turn us into people that hold doors open and say thank you. See, what's happened is, Blaise Pascal, he said, God made man in his image and man return the compliment. And so, so often our image of God is actually formed in our own insecurities. Our image of God has been formed in the things about the world that we don't like. And so God ends up being just as fussy, rude, narrow-minded, legalistic, judgmental, and unloving as we are. I actually think it's a lot like Santa Claus, right? So, you know, what we've heard about Santa is Santa sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake, right? And sometimes Christians become the elf on the shelf reporting to Santa all the bad things that people are doing, right? And so it hit me one day as I was like, oh my goodness, we've actually formed our theology on God with Santa, The fact that if we're good, Santa's going to bring us presents. And if we're bad, then bad things are going to happen. And so we need to be good little boys and girls. Because when we're not good, we don't get gifts. 
And so I become convinced that my goal in raising my son, Manny, is to say, you know what, Manny? You're going to get gifts no matter what on Christmas Day. You don't deserve those gifts. You haven't done anything to actually get those gifts. You're just going to get them. Because let's be honest, we're all on the naughty list, right? (laughs) At least one person is honest. (laughs) You know? And so it's like, Manny, like, you're good sometimes, but most of the time you're bad. Right? But this is a gift. Right? Every Christmas when you wake up, you will have presents under the tree because it is a gift that you have not earned. It is a gift that you get freely. And all you have to do, Manny, is accept it. How would that even change the way that people perceive God if we began to even describe Santa that way? And I think as you, as you search through the scriptures, what we find is we find this God who's in constant pursuit of us. And so what I want to do is I want to open up the scriptures to the book of Luke, chapter 18. If you have a copy in front of you, Luke 18, verses, starting in verse 9. And while you guys are looking for that, I want to machine gun a whole bunch of verses at you. Uh, because they're just too good not to talk about. And so here's a bunch of them that I just want to prep us before we read this. It says, 1 John chapter 4. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in them. It goes on to say, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Then it says, we love because he first loved us. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Book of Romans says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians chapter 2 says, but God, rich in his mercy because of the great love which he had for us. Romans chapter 8, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus says in the book of John, a new command I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Ephesians chapter 2, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Then we find in Luke Chapter 18, starting in verse 9, it says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, many times I actually read that passage of Scripture, and you want to know what actually goes through my mind, if I'm honest, is... God, thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee. Be honest, you were thinking it. Thank you I'm not one of those judgmental fundamentalists. Thank you that I actually accept and embrace people. Unlike this guy, 
Thank you that I'm not proud and arrogant and rude, displaying all my good deeds for everyone to hear and to see. Right? How does that make us any different? And then even you think about the tax collector, right? So the tax collector, like, what's, what's, the, what's kind of the, like, put yourself in this position where, like, your, your job is to disciple this tax collector. It's like, this is your job. So what you're going to do is you're going to meet up every week, and you're talking about, you're going to set some goals, you're going to set some expectations, you're going to set some things to make his life better. And then what happens if he shows up the next week, and he's like, I didn't change anything. And he says, God, forgive me. You know, I messed up, I'm screwed up. It's like, come on, dude, get your act together. Just stop it. You know, and then on the flip side, what is the other solution that this transformation begins to happen, and then all of a sudden the tax collector's like, man, thank you that... I'm no longer stealing and thieving from people. And thank you that I'm no longer like those other tax collectors out there. Those other tax collectors who continue to steal from people. Thank you, God, that I'm no longer like that. See, this thing called love, it's so confusing. Because everything in our brain and everything in our society says that you need to earn it. And once you earn it, once you have that trust, that trust can so easily be broken. So you need to keep that trust. And so I feel like so often that's actually influenced uh, just the way that we view God, the way that we see God, because God, what we need to realize is no matter what we do, God's not going to love us anymore. And no matter what we do, God's not going to love us any less. I love what um, Robert Kappen says about this uh, passage of Scripture. He says, Only when you are finally able, with the tax collector, to admit that you are dead, will you be able to stop balking at grace? So you will cry and you will kick because it will take you out of the only game that you know, the game of morality, the game of work. And the thing about it is when we take that first initial step into love and into grace, it's laughable at the ridiculousness of it because it'll be the easiest step we ever took. Robert Kappen also says in his book, The Romance of the Word, he says, In Jesus, God has put up a gone fishing sign on the religion shop. He has done the whole job in Jesus once and for all and simply invited us to believe it, to trust the bizarre, unprovable proposition that in him, every last person on earth is already home free without a single religious exhortation. No fasting till your knees fold, no prayers, you have to get it right or else, no standing on your head with your right thumb and your left ear and reciting the correct creo. No nothing. The entire show has been set to the rights and the mystery of Christ, even though nobody can see a single improvement. Yes, it's crazy. And yes, it's wild, outrageous, and vulgar. And any God who would do such a thing is a God who has no taste. And worst of all, it doesn't sell worth the beans. But it is good news. The only permanently good news there is, and therefore I find it absolutely captivating. And we find these stories over and over again in the scriptures. In Mark chapter 2, it says, Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus, God in the flesh, did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Think about that in this moment. Think about all of the law in the Old Testament and these people who think, 
I got it down. I got it. And Jesus is like, no, I've come for the outcasts. I've come for the liars. I've come for the thieves. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then we find that there's another parable in the, in, uh, that Jesus tells about these workers, right? And some of the workers, they show up at sunrise and they work this long, crazy 16-hour day. And then at the end of the day, they needed some more workers. So some workers come in at the very end of the day and they maybe work an hour. And then the bell rings, day's over, and everyone gets paid the same. How would you feel about that? I'd be pretty upset. I'd be like, I put in a 16-hour day, and you're telling me this guy got just as much as me. That is grace. Another story. Accusers throw this naked woman in front of Jesus, and they say, this woman's caught in the act of adultery. Should we stone her? And Jesus says, if you are without sin, cast the first stone. And then there's this crazy, insane book in the Old Testament where God actually asks this man to marry an unfaithful woman. And every time this woman is unfaithful, every time she goes out and she prostitutes herself, God speaks to Hosea and he says, go after your wife and bring her home. Go after your wife and bring her home. Because what he's trying to say is, this is how much I love you. I want you pursuing your wife to be an example of how I'm consistently loving the world. That even when we prostitute ourselves, even when we leave, even when we turn our back, God is always, always coming for us. He's always coming after us with nothing but unconditional love. It sounds too good to be true. It really does. It's like you can't. That can't be possible. Like there has to be something that I'm going to do that's going to make you upset. There has to be something that I need to do in order to to, to just get, get you to like me. And it's so hard for us to believe. And I feel like so often I just fall into the line, to the trap of action, right? Where all my life is about what I'm doing. That if I can just do this, if I can just do that, if we can just continue to plant churches, God's going to like us and bless us in Lincoln. And if I'm actually truly honest, I feel like even me being on this stage right now, speaking to you guys is part of me desperately wanting God to accept me and to like me so I could say, God, I'm serving you. God, I'm serving you with my life. God, I just want everything to be about you because I'm still deep down probably longing for that acceptance. When God's like, man, you don't need to earn my acceptance, my love, because you already have it. Grace is not fair. I was reading a story uh, about a, a minister who, he became friends with Jeffrey Dahmer when he went into prison. So Jeffrey Dahmer was a serial killer who, uh, he was a cannibal. He ate his people that he killed. Absolutely disgusting, right? So in prison, this guy, Jeffrey Dahmer, embraces grace, embraces love. And this minister who had been uh, taking him on this journey baptizes him. And this minister got so much flack from people like, how could you do that? How could you let him be a part of us? How could you embrace him into our fold? This guy is a maniac. Think about that in a moment. Even what's going on inside of you is that God loves you just as much as a serial killer. That's offensive, isn't it? Right? I've been working all day. He's worked for 10 minutes. The thief on the cross next to Jesus Today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't deserve that. Some of us have worked our whole lives for it. Others have worked two minutes for that love. And yet God is saying it's there. 
that love, that grace is always there. We as a church, we want to embrace this idea of unconditional love. So what's the practical application of this? What does this look like? What it looks like is no agenda. I think even sometimes we become friends with people just to evangelize them. Is that truly love? Or are we actually after something? When you help someone, are you really just doing it because you're doing it out of guilt? You're doing it out of shame? Are you doing it out of this deep desire that you desperately want to love someone? When you become friends with someone who constantly let you down, do you want to stay friends with them? And so we're in this tension as a community. How do we embrace action and how do we embrace unconditional love? And I believe what it lies in truly is you don't have to do anything. You really don't. You don't have to do anything. You get to do anything. The fact that God, when we step into that grace, when we step into unconditional love, what it does is something happens inside of our soul. What happens is something happens inside of us where we're like, man, we got to tell the world about this crazy, crazy thing called unconditional love. We got to tell the world that God, actually the creator of everything, actually wants to be around us. And that Jesus became a stump that we can sit on. And that he is constantly pursuing us. There's this Hebrew word, anawim. Everyone say with me, anawim. Anawim. So anawim is a Hebrew word that means the poor who depend on the Lord for deliverance. The poor who depend on the Lord for deliverance. And that word is actually found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, where it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. See, it's not till you get to the point where you realize you are dead. You're absolutely dead in your sin. And I feel like a lot of it has to do with our theology of sin because I feel like when I grew up, uh, I kept hearing people say things like, if you sin, God is going to want to separate himself from you. But when you look at the life of Jesus, what he did is he drew closer to people who were sinning. He drew closer to the sick, to the people who needed healing. See, sin, it doesn't cause God to die. It causes us to die. And if we know one thing about Jesus is we know that he is able to raise the dead. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And today, Jesus wants to raise you from the dead with unconditional love. I remember uh, when I was a senior in college, this kind of pivotal moment happened in my life. I realized uh, there was three words my dad hadn't said to me in about a decade. Don't get me wrong, my dad is a great father. He's been faithful to my mom. He was always uh, playing catch with me in the yard, going fishing together as a family. He was an awesome, awesome dad. But he never said these three words to me. And I remember, like, he would even show up to my soccer games in high school, and I would try to do, do a lot better or score a goal because I wanted him to be proud. Or when he came to my baseball games, I desperately wanted to get a hit or a home run so that I could see a smile on his face and a slap on the back and say, you crushed it. And I realized, man, I haven't heard these three words. And 
I remember when I was 18 years old, my dad had this life-changing encounter with a God who just wanted to express nothing but unconditional love and grace to him. And so then we fast forward three years, and I'm driving in the car with my dad, and he's taking me back to school. And nothing special about the car ride. Just two introverts in a car, so it was pretty quiet. Radio was on. And we get there, and he, um, he stops the car, and I'm about to get out, and then all of a sudden he looks at me, and he says, Bill, I love you. And man, something happened, like my stomach twisted, and like my throat closed up, and I was just like, Ugh. and I didn't know what to do, I like, froze. And I like did, all, the only thing I knew what I could do was, I just opened up the car door and walked out. <laughs> Because, like, it was, it was honestly, I just didn't want my dad to see me cry, you know, because I, I like to push down my emotions, and I'm a 21-year-old man. My dad can't see me cry, right? But what I realized was for so long, I was longing to hear those words over my life, and I didn't even realize it. I was trying to earn it from him. I was trying to do everything possible to get my dad to like me, to get my dad to accept me. But all along, he did. But I, deep down, was longing to hear him say those words to me. And I wonder if you today are longing, deep down inside, for you to hear those words coming from your God in heaven. That deep down inside, something in your soul is desperate to hear the words, I love you. Because all we need to do is accept it and embrace it as a gift. Brendan Manning, um, author of Ragamuffin Gospel, he says that he believes that when we stand before God someday, God's going to ask us one question. And that question is, did you believe that I loved you? Did you truly, honestly believe and embrace that I loved you? And today I want us to embrace that. I want us to embrace that God is so madly and desperately in love with you. I want us to be a community that is defined by unconditional love. That when people meet us, they're going to be like, man, there's something about that place. There's something about that church. There's something about that group of people called Mosaic. Man, they just love people. They're not judging them. They're not constantly just asking them to change, not constantly asking them to fit in, not constantly saying, you know what? You got to fix yourself before you come in these doors. But we're constantly just like, man, we're just... We just want to love you. We want to embrace you. We want to be together as a community to embrace this tension of love, unconditional love and action. And how do we become a community that's defined by those two things? And so I wonder, like, even in this moment, because I believe truly that the reason why you're here today is because God wants to transform your heart. And the way he does that is through letting you know there's nothing you can do to earn my love. There's nothing you could do to make, you li- to make me like you anymore. There's nothing that you can do to make, you, to make me accept you anymore. Just know, deep down, that I love you. Let's close our eyes. God, in this moment, I pray very specifically that every single person in this room will hear your voice. That through the cloudiness of all those thoughts that go around in our head that say that we're not good enough, we're not lovable enough, 
all that guilt and that shame. God, I pray that your voice penetrates everything. And so us, in this moment, we are here. In our hearts, in our minds, I want us to ask that question one more time. God, do you love me? God, do you love me? And God, I pray that you will speak to us through our thoughts. I pray that we will hear this weird, small, tiny little voice in the back of our heads. God, bring memories to the forefront of our mind. God, bring these images to our thoughts. God, I pray that here and now today, you will speak to us and that we will hear your voice. God, do you love me? Jesus, we're so so thankful that you chose to empty yourself and that you chose to go to the bloody, horrible, atrocious death on Calvary. And you didn't do it just to make us moral human beings. You did it to show us that I love you no matter what you do. You did it to show us that, man, there is nothing you can do to run for my love or my grace. All you can do is accept it. And so in this moment here and now today, there's a choice. We can choose to accept that love or we can choose to reject that love. And today I pray that you sitting in these seats, your choice is to say, Jesus, I accept this gift. There's nothing that I can do but to just say, thank you, I am just a beggar. I am just poor. I'm a wean. That God, I am this poor beggar and all I can do is accept and embrace this gift that you have given me. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me.